Welcome to another edition of San Joaquin Spotlight, a public affairs broadcast airing on CMAC, Comcast 93 and AT&T 99. We're also on Radio in the Valley, Talk Radio 1550, KXEX, and we're also on Spotify's Anchor FM podcasts. Today, we're talking to Fresno State Professor Barlow Dermagurdichian. Professor Dermagurdichian has been with the Armenian Studies Program. Currently, that's, that's where he teaches. Welcome to the program, Professor. Thank you, Sevag. Thank you for having me. Always good to see you. I, you know, I've known you now for a couple of decades, and I, I admire your passion, Professor. I really do. Thank you. Well, you, you know, I've always told my students that if you want to find a line of work, do something that you like. And uh, teaching and doing what I do is something that I really like. And, you know, we're on TV, we're on radio and podcast. You know a little bit about that. You've been on TV, radio and podcast before, but, you know, you still are doing a radio show too, correct? Well, I'm I'm doing it, but I, I'm thinking of, you know, pretty soon it's going to be a little bit too much because it's it's pretty tough to find hosts to find guests every week, you know, you have to really work at it, as you well know. Yeah. And so, Professor, you know, I wanted to invite you on the show to talk about the latest in Armenia. Now, we had you on a couple of months ago, uh, but there was something that happened in November. Can you tell us what happened? Well, the, so we have to just, you know, basically go back to the part of the beginning of the story, which was the war in, in Karabakh, which took place between September and November of 2020. And it was really uh, ended with an agreement. Uh, it wasn't really a peace treaty. And really, this agreement has been a, a source of a, a lot of controversy. And, you know, where, where does everyone go uh, forward? And it's been interpreted in so many different ways. Um, so finally, recently in November, once again, President Putin of Russia, uh, pres uh, Vice President of uh, Azerbaijan, Aliyev, and the Prime Minister Pashinyan of Armenia met to again discuss some of the uh, provisions or possible provisions of that uh, agreement. And I think it's, it's still actually, uh, it wasn't much clearer after because it seems like each one interprets it in their own, uh, in their own way through their own lens. You know, the... Throughout this process, though, there's been flare-ups in violence. And so, you know, one side accuses the other. What, what's going on on the border? I mean, are there, from what you're hearing, are there fires going back and forth between the two armies? I think what's happening is that Azerbaijan is constantly kind of testing Armenia to see what its will is. In other, in other words, do they have the will to fight back? Do they have the will to really... Uh, Fight, And if they do, then maybe it's a different question. It's also something that you, you see is tied into the negotiations because uh, leading right up to the negotiations, it was kind of quiet because no one wants to be seen as being the aggressor, in particular, of course, Azerbaijan. So I think, I think it's, it's part of a bigger strategy on the part of Azerbaijan to initiate these sort of uh, incursions, you can call them, or firefights in order to further their, their agenda. So when these things happen, I would imagine that, you know, for Armenia, especially because it seems like we, we hear that the violation is coming from the Azerbaijan side. I imagine it makes Armenia more upset and, and it also harms 
additional families because we're talking human beings here on the border. Well, any any uh, any villager, any any Armenian citizen that lives near a border uh, region has been affected very greatly, especially in the southern Sunik region, because uh, the Azeris have really, you know, interrupted travel, free free travel. They've taken over parts of highways. Uh, it has made travel between villages and between cities difficult. So all of these are again part of this sort of calculated strategy, I think, uh, to again put pressure on uh, on Armenia to try to put them in a position where uh, where they have to do what Azerbaijan really wants. But in a sense, it also backfires because it makes it harder for the prime minister, Pashinyan, to really go ahead and agree to these when his public opinion is strongly against it because of what Azerbaijan has done. And somewhere along these agreements, Russia and recently uh, the Secretary of the State of the United States, Anthony Blinken, has been involved. There's some transportation quarters discussion, correct? Yes. Well, I think the issue, and I think this word corridor is is the one that really is uh, is one that's interpreted differently. I think on the one hand, Armenia is probably willing to open up what we call transportation links, which would simply mean that travel between Azerbaijan and Nakhichevan would be open. Uh, whereas Azerbaijan focuses more on the idea of a corridor. A corridor to me has the idea of actually taking over territory and making it part of your territory. And I think Armenia for sure cannot allow that to happen because it would cut off their access to Iran. So this is, this is one of the main points uh, of the discussion over the final sort of treaty, if there is to be one or final agreement, is over the, the definition of the word corridor and then the other major issue is this idea of uh, delimiting or demarking the borders. What are the actual borders of each of these countries? Uh, they have to be finally decided because, because of the Karabakh War, they have to be finally decided. So I think these are the two big issues that, that need to be resolved. And then the other thing, Professor, that we hear out about are different maps. Both sides have different maps. And then there are accurate or more accurate maps in Russia. Uh, are these maps that the Soviet Union put together, or where did these maps come from? Well, maps uh, maps are historical. They can be all the way from 100 years ago to older maps. I think the Armenians would say, well, what was the boundaries of the republics uh, at the time they were part of the Soviet Union? And that's, that's where the Armenians would say that should be the boundaries. Uh, and those boundaries were pretty much the same during the period of the independence from 1991 forward. So to say that somehow uh, certain parts should be changed back is going to be a little bit difficult. Although there were some anomalies, these are the so-called uh, islands, uh, the so-called territorial areas, small territory areas that are completely within the other regions, the other countries' area. So these have to also be resolved as part of the uh, part of the general plan. Professor, you're involved with Armenian studies. You, you've been to the country of Armenia numerous times. Do you see these countries finally agreeing? I mean, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm optimistic, but I'm pessimistic because I know there's a lot of feelings involved and I know that there's a lot of, you know, history involved. I mean, do you see that eventually there'll be an agreement or do you think it'll just continue as is? It's really the question that we call them the million dollar question or maybe the $10 million question, but 
we have to just look, I mean, you know, on the one hand, you can be optimistic because even the worst enemies uh, have in other parts of the world become friends, France and Germany or France and England, you know, for hundreds of years, they were fighting with each other. Uh, in the case of Ar Armenia and Azerbaijan, unfortunately, uh, Armenia is in a position where it is uh, surrounded by Turkey as well, with which it has a longer history. Uh, and so it has to deal with with a regional issue, not only just, a you know, its own own country. And you, you're right, people bring with it a lot of their own history, baggage, uh, feelings. My feeling is it can be resolved if both sides see that it will be beneficial to both sides to, to really sign something that, that can be a long-term precursor to peace. But on the other hand, we've seen that Azerbaijan and Turkey have really pursued a pan-Turkism pan policy which has really been, you know, they don't stop. They, they've, you know, taken over parts of Karabakh and now they're, they're uh, working on Armenia itself. Russia has been really the one to step in and broker the peace treaty, or not the peace treaty, but the ceasefire agreement. Their hands have been involved. What makes Russia so vested in this? I mean, one, one could say Russia could walk away and let these two fight till the end. And then others say, well, Russia needs to be involved because they want to know what's going on near their border. The, the issue is that uh, this region, when I say this region, I'm thinking Caucasus, you know, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, has really been part of the Russian orbit for more than 200 years. So for more than 200 years, Russia has seen this area as being strategic to its own interests. They certainly don't want to have Turkey right on their borders. They wouldn't want... Uh, these countries to to fully break away from the Russian influence. So Russia clearly sees these areas as a place it has um, a great deal of influence and doesn't want to lose that influence to, let's say, Turkey or to the United States or to NATO or, or to Western countries. So uh, we have to look at it in a larger uh, picture. And that's why it's not just an Armenia-Azerbaijan issue, but Russia has its very clear national interests at stake and uh, that outweighs even Armenian interests in many cases. Professor, I want to ask you about the Armenian diaspora, not so much around the world, but in the United States. You know, the United States has interests in the area as well. The diaspora, do you think that we can play a role in the outcome of what happens? I've heard some people say, you know, the government's not going to listen to our Armenian Americans because of the interest with Azerbaijan and oil. And then I've heard others say, no, you know, there's a significant, important Armenian American population here. I mean, look, you know, Fresno State, so much Armenian influence in Fresno State. Well, I think if you're looking at it from a political perspective, I think Armenians do have uh, some influence in Washington, D.C., and do have a role to play in this because if if, for instance, I think if Azerbaijan, for instance, ever figured out that the diaspora is not going to get involved and simply doesn't care about what happens, they, they would be even more aggressive. So I think whatever efforts that we can do to bring attention with our Congress, with our president, uh, with any aspect in America makes, uh, makes it easier for Armenia to pursue its national interests. Uh, and of course, we're not even talking about the financial, where the diaspora plays a significant role, uh, both in Karabakh and in Armenia, with its financial contribution. So I would say in sum that 
diaspora is tremendously important uh, in this situation. Europe is interesting here, Professor, because I read reports from the European Parliament and the European Union that they want to get more involved here, but no, nobody stepped in during the war, and it was really a one-sided attack against Armenia. You had Turkey, you had a little bit of Pakistan, and you had a little bit of Israeli drones. My question is, where do you think Europe is here in this? Because now, you know, we hear that they want to invest in Armenia, but some people might be suspicious in that if they cared so much, why didn't they get involved to prevent the bloodshed? It's, a, it's another very good question. Uh, I, I guess it deals again with history, the history of the Karabakh conflict, uh, the peace treaty or the ceasefire, which was signed in 1994. And in its place was put a peace process called the Minsk process. And part of that is some uh, dozen or so countries uh, of which the United States, Russia and France are co-chairs. They were tasked with really resolving this Karabakh conflict. And we can see that in some 26, 27 years, they, they really haven't been successful. Um, and so I think in Europe, they were hesitant to, to join with Armenia because if you look at or with Karabakh, because uh, most of the world, including the United Nations, had uh, some important resolutions, which were not necessarily favorable to the Karabakh position, but uh, again, would make it difficult. You can't just send an army into this region. You know, that's the, they can't do that. Uh, that's why Russia is so important, because Russia could send its troops as a neighbor right into that area and to at least stop the war. Speaking of Russia and military, there is a Russian base in Armenia. And some people have criticized Russia and said, Russia, you have a base there. You should have intervened. But it's not that easy, correct, Barlow? The Kar Professor Dermogradichin, the Karabakh issue is a little more detailed than that. Well, the, the agreement that Armenia has with Russia deals with the collective uh, security treaty, which is composed of six countries. It's kind of the NATO of, uh, of, the, of Russia. It's a Russian initiative, which is intended to uh, preserve the territorial integrity of any of the countries. In other words, if a third country attacks, other countries are bound to, to support them. The argument in Karabakh is the, that they'll say that that's not Armenia. That wasn't Armenia. Really, that's Karabakh, which is some entity, but it wasn't Armenia, so they didn't do so. It's a little bit harder to make that argument when we know that the Azeris attacked in southern Armenia and actually have been attacking villages and towns in Armenia and the territory of Armenia. That's where you would have hoped that there would have been a stronger reaction uh, from these other fellow members of this security uh, agreement. So, Professor, you, you recently donated computers to a computer lab in Artsakh, Artsakh University, I believe. How, what's the situation there? I mean, I remember going to school in college at Fresno State and then law school. And I, you know, I had to study a lot. I had to read a lot. The last thing I need is a war or threat of a war. I mean, it's a tough situation for the university students, correct? Yeah, it's, it's uh, difficult in so many ways. Uh, there's the pandemic, which is still a problem, uh, of course, everywhere in the world, but especially uh, in uh, Karabakh and in Armenia, uh, the war as well. So what it's meant is that it's difficult for students to pursue their education. 
Uh, Artsakh State University is the premier public uh, institution in uh, Artsakh, Karabakh, uh, and it has some two or three thousand students. But it's it's difficult because uh, because of the of the reasons that you talked about, because of financial situations uh, for students to to enter in the university. And now the government has taken the decision that uh, for the next few years, at least the education will be free for qualified students. So at least that's one way of um, getting students to continue their education. So what how can we help? I mean, we we have a lot of people listening to this program on radio, watching and the podcast as well. Um, how can we help Artsakh or Armenia or even, I'll take it one step further, how can we help resolve this issue? Because in my lifetime, I feel like every few years, even less than a decade, uh, maybe half a decade, something happens in nagorno karabakh Artsakh, known as Artsakh for Armenians, that always grabs our attention? Well, I think, again, we have to divide the political from the, the moral or financial aspect. So we talked a little bit about that the diaspora is important through showing their support for uh, Artsakh through lobbying in Washington. But we can also make a direct impact. There are actually many organizations, uh, Armenian organizations and international organizations that do have a presence in Artsakh. Uh, there's uh, the Armenia Fund, although some people may have questions about it, are building uh, new homes in, in Artsakh. Um, and there are, there are nonprofits that are working there. And so people, if they're interested, um, can, can look those up. And if you're specifically interested in the university, you can talk to me or get, get in contact with me. And I can tell you about some of the projects that, that still need to be completed there. But if you really want to do something, you, you can find a way to do it. And uh, it can be the, the church, uh, the Armenian Missionary Association, the Apostolic Church, uh, as I mentioned, Armenia Fund and other groups, which are putting in resources uh, to help rebuild the country. Let's talk a little bit about the Armenian Studies Program, Professor. You had a, a book come out recently. Uh, the, the book was called The Committee of Union of, and Progress. Talk a little bit about that book. The Armenian Studies Program held a conference about three years ago on the Committee of Union and Progress. The Committee of Union and Progress was the political party which was in charge of the Ottoman Empire at the beginning of uh, World War I and the Armenian Genocide. So generally speaking, they're the ones responsible for uh, the Armenian Genocide. So our conference was intended to bring to light new information about this uh, committee. And so uh, we brought six scholars uh, together to uh, speak, and then we took their uh, articles to make them book chapters. The book is, uh, the full title of the book is uh, Committee of Union and Progress, Founders, Ideology and Structures, in which each of the authors takes a different look at a different aspect of this Committee of Union and Progress. So it's a book which I was very happy to help co-edit because it really is going to be something that will uh, bring added value to the study of uh, the Armenian Genocide. Speaking of the Armenian Genocide, Professor, you know, each year for decades, I remember because I was a student there years ago and I would go to these things, the Armenian Students Organization would have a commemoration for April 24th. Now that the genocide has been recognized in the U.S., 
does this continue and why is it important to continue? In my opinion, it must continue. It should continue because we're talking about not only the issue of recognition, which I think is an ongoing issue, but it's also a question of uh, remembering our, our, our ancestors, those who went through this. Uh, and it's a way to always, every year, to actually bring attention to new generations, not only of Armenians, but non-Armenians. So you can't just say, well, we've done our job and that's it. Let's go home and let's not do it. Let's not do it anymore. Let's not have an April 24th. April 24th should be every day of the year uh, for those that are really very dedicated. But at least once a year uh, throughout the world, Armenians and others should come together to commemorate, to be inspired by the story and to tell that story so that we can help to prevent genocide in the future. You know, I, I have to give a shout out here to Fresno State, not just because I went to school there and, and there's a phenomenal program there, but Fresno State actually has a genocide monument on campus. And I'll tell you, I'll be the first to admit it, that at first when I heard that the monument's going on Fresno State campus, I thought, would there be a different place or a better venue? And as I started thinking about it more, it made more sense. And now as I'm experiencing, you know, different events around campus and at Fresno State, the monument makes sense there. How important is that monument? And how many students see that monument? The monument is, is placed in a very sort of strategic area on campus, strategic meaning that it's on a main path crossway between major parking lots and the center of campus. So in, you know, pre-pandemic, I would say thousands of students, faculty, staff, visitors would, would be walking by, looking at it, being involved in it. It's important because uh, it is on a campus and learning institution. So the primary purpose is a, an educational purpose uh, to learn about genocide. So in all those reasons, for all those reasons, I think it was the appropriate place for it. And it really fits into the area where it is now. Professor, you have some events or lectures coming up. Are these done online still? Are they in person? And what notable ones do you have coming up uh, that you want to share? Well, in the past few semesters, due to the pandemic and due to health uh, rules, we've been totally online. In the upcoming uh, semester, we're going to have, uh, well, we're going to have our Armenian Studies Annual Banquet, where we will be commemorating the 45th anniversary of our program. And we'll be also uh, recognizing our students who have received scholarships and who are graduating. We also have uh, lectures planned uh, about our new, a new book that was just published, uh, which was short stories by Zabel Yesayan. And we'll also have in works a, a major conference on uh, the Armenian genocide uh, planning in the planning stages for the upcoming semester. In addition to that, we have uh, co-sponsorships in the music department for musical pre presentations. And we have all different kinds of lectures that we're in the process of planning for the spring semester. Professor, you know, we're running out of time this week on the program, but why is it important to keep not only the genocide, but to keep the issues that impact Armenian Americans or Armenia at the forefront? Some people will say Armenia was there far away. You're in America now. Who cares what happens there? You're an American. Uh, wh why do you say we should still care? 
I think if you're uh, an American and a, and a good American, a good American also thinks about the history of who they are and where they came from. And for Armenians, uh, again, I don't think you can ever just completely, you should not just completely forget about it and say, I'm coming from somewhere else and that's that's just it. Let's just be Americans. No, I think you can learn more about the culture, about the history, the language, the art, and to understand the contributions of the Armenian people to world civilization. So it's really essential that we continue to, to learn, to, to tell people about the Armenian people, uh, to, to keep the Armenian studies program strong and, and to really help to support Armenia and, and Artsakh. One final question, Professor, and I'll let you go. You've been to Armenia numerous times. We're seeing an uptick in travel to Armenia, or we were before the pandemic. Is, that, is Armenia a good place to go travel? Sure, it's good as any any other place. In fact, uh, better in many ways. There's history to, to be seen. There's good food. There's um, art. There's music. I mean, what makes what makes a good destination? It's it's somewhere where you can learn. In my opinion, uh, learn about things, learn about a new culture, and it has all the amenities that anyone would want with the hotels and everything like that. So, I would definitely encourage people to to visit Armenia. On that note, you have been listening to San Joaquin Spotlight, a public affairs broadcast airing on CMAC, Comcast 93 and AT&T 99. We're also on Talk Radio 1550 KXCX, and we're on Anchor FM, a product of Spotify Podcasts. Our guest this week has been Professor Barlow Dermugardichin, the coordinator of the Armenian Studies Program here at Fresno State. Professor Thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me, Sevan. That's all for this edition of the program. Tune in next week to a new edition.